If you felt trapped in your life, burdened by pain, trauma and disillusionment, what would you do? You might want to leave your life behind and escape, right? But how many of us have the courage to actually do that? My guests in this two-part episode are the far-out couple Alistair Plambeck and Julie Roxanne Krikorian. And that is precisely what they did when they left their lives behind to find a new and better life living in Guatemala. Julie Roxanne and Alastair met by chance in a chai shop in Rajasthan, India, whilst on a self-discovery journey. It was this chance meeting that changed their lives and set them together on a shared healing path. In this first part, we hear about the event that led up to their serendipitous meeting in India. From Julia Roxanne about the hidden depression, anxiety and abuse that characterised her childhood. Why am I having such a hard time? There was a sense of, yeah, what's wrong with me that I can't do what everyone seems to be doing, uh, that, that I'm so riddled and crippled by this anxiety and this depression and that everything feels so hard. I remember coming home from school and just just sleeping, sleeping as soon as I got home and just sleeping all the time where I could because I just didn't want to be alive. I just didn't want to live. The meditation retreat in India that was the catalyst for a deeper understanding and realisation of the impact of events in her childhood. And finally, how the unravelling of her identity was the beginning of rebuilding her and Alastair's life together. I'm Simon Ratcliffe and this is Turning the Tables, a podcast dedicated to the candid, powerful stories of people who have turned around adversity in their personal or business lives to find new purpose and meaning. Each episode, my guests share their insight about how to turn adversity into advantage. I'm delighted to welcome to the Turning the Tables podcast, Alastair and Julie Roxanne, who I'm going to refer to as the far out couple. And I'd love to talk to you both about how that title has come to bear and to dig into the journeys that both of you had that have brought you to that place that you are now. Because I understand both of you have been through significant adversity in your life and traumas. And somehow or other, it seems like there's been a serendipity of you coming together as the far out couple. Well, thanks, Simon. Um, I'm really happy to be here. Uh, me too. I'm delighted. <laughs> I, I think actually maybe that question around the far out couple, the idea of far out for me, or if I trace it back to its roots for me, or like where that where that idea really started to stick out to me, it was actually um, probably about five or six years ago. I was in the desert in uh, Southern California. I was in Joshua Tree, and I had driven up there for a couple of days, 
And there were just kind of houses that were out in the desert with like nothing around. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I'm just kind of wondering with like kind of a curiosity, like what would it be like to live somewhere this far out? And like, what would happen if you did? And like, you know, how long would it take before you maybe couldn't come back mm. in some way? Or like, you, you know, like maybe, maybe you go so far that at some point there's, there's, you cross a Rubicon and, and there's no coming back. And like, what kind of life would that be? And it always kind of, there was kind of a curiosity and also like a fear mm. and, um, and an excitement to that. And I think that's for me, for me where the idea of far out came from. Yeah, and I think we we built on that when we started our podcast. We decided to call it the Far Out Podcast. And at that time, we were living in a trailer that we renovated ourselves. And the funny thing is that we couldn't drive or move that trailer around. So we had it delivered on a piece of land where we were allowed to live in the forest in southwest France. And... It was far out. <laughs> we had, we had the, the, the trailer was literally at the end of a dirt road, way past a village that already no one goes to. It's like the village no one goes to. And then you go to the dirt road and then, and we were at the edge of the forest. And I remember, um, Alistair wanted to build a sign that said the outpost or the last frontier. And so we thought, yeah, this is really far out. And it matched with the story that you just shared. And I think this is where the podcast came out. And as we started doing the podcast, we realized, okay, this is a far out podcast, but we're the far out couple. Yeah. And I think there's one further thing with this far out idea was that's been working on me ever since. I don't think it was super clear when I, when, when I was first in that desert, but it's become more clear to me that this is part of what the interest is. It's like, what happens when you live, when, when you go that, like what happens when you go so far out or you become so far out? What happens in my mind when you start to really become yourself? Because I think we're all pretty weird, each mm. of us, right? And so it's kind of like discovering yourself and what happens when you become far out, when you really go to that place that only you can go to. Um, and that's kind of been a little bit of the evolution of that idea is, is, is this idea of going so far out, you become yourself. And that's really the backstory, I guess, to your, to, to where you've arrived at, as it were, with that, with that title, that both of you have come through things which have pushed you to perhaps look a bit deeper into, you know, your own self and, and your own life. Yeah, um, we met in India um, three and a half years ago now, mm -hmm. three, almost exactly three and a half years ago. Um, it was the, so we were in a, a small town called Bundi. It's actually where the Jungle Book was written. Mm -hmm. um, and it really feels like that, like, like that is, so it's in Rajasthan. So, and uh, it, I mean, literally we were told, you know, you can spot, panthers on the hills sometimes um and there's there's t 
two different types of monkeys, one that are more dangerous than the other, that are roaming around. They own the roofs. Uh, you, you can't, like, you have to, our, there was a, we were staying at this guest house there, and the owner, his name was Raj, he actually had a guest house who was called the Elephant Stables, and that's because it was the Elephant Stables right outside the old palace, which was still there, and it's on this hill overlooking the whole town. And he he had inherited his ancestors, had been the keepers of the elephant stables, and he had turned it into a little hostel. Um, so that's where we were sleeping for like, I think it was like, I think it was a dollar fifty a night or <laughs> something. And basically there was a bed in, in like, um, with in these like cement archways and, and everything like where the elephants were. And he'd come out when the monkeys came and he'd, uh, fire a fake rifle and and start like like kind of beating his chest almost and like whoo whoo like a like a gorilla almost to scare him away it was hilarious but so we were in this town and we had before we met um i guess this kind of well i'll I'll, I'll say how we met first and then we can kind of like follow the thread back from there but there was Holy Festival, which is the biggest festival in India. It's this amazing, incredible festival that happens every year where basically everyone throws paint at each other um, and, and colored powders and things. And it, and it lasts for like half the day. And you can't, you cannot avoid it. It happens in the house. It happens outside the house. Everyone floods the streets. You're getting kind of like slapped with powder by, by old men and and, and, and women and, and kids are throwing water balloons from the rooftops. It's just, it's absolute chaos. And um, I had just come into the town a couple of days before and um, I was like completely disoriented. And Holy Festival is really fun for like a couple hours. And then it's like, whoa, this, this, is, this, this is gets a little old. And like, <laughs> yeah, and as like a duty. foreigner, um, you are the center of attention. Everyone, everyone wants to give you a hug and hit you with some powder. And, and invite and you, invite you in for chai and all this stuff. So like, and it's, India is already an overstimulating place, but on a day like this, it's just, it's absolute madness. And this thing starts at like five in the morning mm-hmm. and it goes to like two in the afternoon. And there's a whole, there's a bunch of stuff that build up to it over the weeks before. So I was walking around dazed. Um, actually, if I'm being honest, I had got picked. So a couple kids on motorbikes had come up, offered me bang, which is, which they often take on these kind of ceremonial days, which is, basically a form of edible cannabis. And so the get, one of the kids driving the motorcycle, this is not my best judgment, he uh, offered me a finger full of bang. And then they invited me to get on the back of their motorcycle. Uh, there was like five of these kids on motorcycles. For, and and so I did. And and then they just start, we started whizzing through the streets. And very quickly, I didn't know where I was. And kids were trying to peg us with water balloons and water buckets and things. And I'd come, I'd done that for an hour. And then as soon as I found a place where like I recognized it, I jumped off the bike and was like, okay, bye. And uh, I was pretty disoriented at this point and pretty tired. And I walked into a chai shop uh, to, to kind of hide. And uh, that's yeah, where you come into the story. That's the kind of where I come in. Um, yeah, I was, I had been living in this town for like, three weeks at that point. Uh, so I had like a group of friends and I had my bearings and um, it was kind of home for me. And um, 
we went out in the morning and went into the madness, which was way more uh, stimulating than I thought it was going to be. It was very intense and you can't do, you can't walk two steps without someone trying to hug you or, or put powders in your hair or in some cases, uh, hug you. And the, the idea behind hugging you is to kind of like grope you a little bit, you know, like teenage boys, teenage Indian boys are, something and uh and so by the end of the road like when i got to the point where the the chai shop was was around that corner i was done i i needed to go back to my safe haven and my guest house and my bedroom and and all that and my group of friends i said okay i'm 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 leaving i'm i'm going back up and I have to say the idea of walking the 20 minutes back up was that was a little daunting to walk by myself but uh, but they said like okay we're gonna go back up we're just gonna have a chai and then we're gonna go back up and so I walked inside this chai shop funny side note I don't drink chai because I'm lactose intolerant so I was just there waiting for everyone to be done and there was only one person sitting in that chai shop and his face was all red and all I could see was bright blue eyes and and I started venting and, and expressing my discontent, uh, you know, like how upset I was with the fact that it was so stimulating. And I just heard this voice say, are you Costa Rican? <laughs> so, it was Alistair, uh, who, who basically, thank God you initiated the first talk, because I don't know if I would have talked to you, because I was with friends, so yeah, I didn't really need to. Worst pickup line ever. It, it wasn't. I, I don't, <laughs> or at I don't, least the most inaccurate. I don't think it was. It, it was your, your, uh, your, it was a pickup line. I think you were no. just trying to make contact. And it all kind of unfolded from there. I felt a very strong energetical connection with him. And by that time, I was, I had been traveling a lot. And so I was really attuned to following these feelings of there's someone here, or there's somewhere that feels particularly right. And I need to engage my energy. And so I, I told him, I asked him what his plans were and he said he was going to be writing and staying here for a little bit of time. And I told him, you need to move into our guest house because it's the best guest house in, in the town and we have a garden and it's amazing if you're a writer. And uh, yeah, and the next day he moved in and about a week later we got together, which was not the plan initially. <laughs> that never was the intention. And a couple of weeks later, we end up taking a three-day train across the entire waste belt of India to Darjeeling and... Uh, then within a few weeks, we spent a month together trekking through the Himalayas. So and the far out couple kind of starts even in just the way we met. I think at that time we were both in utter shock. That's really interesting. And and I really like to explore the, the sort of synchronicity that I guess goes beyond that, because what had actually, what you'd gone through in life that had led you to that place at that time because you both had certain parallels hadn't you in your your lives to that point yeah um i think this this exploring how i got to that place is is kind of interesting especially because i feel like i'm getting new data about that every day um uh, but really i i would say that i grew up as a a uh, fairly anxious and depressed child. I 
the anxiety, like I was very good at pretending. So no one would ever qualify me as anxious or depressed uh, as a child. But I, I was, it was crippling. Um, I, I would have very hard times going to sleep. I, now I, I realized just how, uh, in constant pain I was. I, I didn't, I didn't know I was in pain because that's all I ever knew. But basically, I didn't digest anything that I was eating. Uh, I now know that I'm gluten and dairy uh, intolerant, and that's pretty much all I was eating because I was French. And so, the, the, the <laughs> uh, yeah, there was just a constant level of pain that I just learned to live with. And and there was alongside that, connected or not, there was just a general anxiety. By the time I reached my teenage years, the depression was. Um, uh, crippling. Uh, I, I again was very good at putting on the show and putting on the the, the front that everything was okay. I was the uh, funny one of the of the group, but I, I was extremely depressed. Um, suicidal thoughts entertained the idea of of killing myself quite often and quite seriously. Um, I used to self harm uh, because it was the only way to relieve the intensity of the anxiety that I was feeling. So the, the, the harming myself was the only way that I could relieve some of that anxiety. And I also had, and, and now I think it's also, I'm connecting the dots with the uh, intolerance in the food si- situation was that I ended up becoming um, anorexic and, and had like all sorts of mm-hmm. um, eating disorders. And there was really this gnawing sense the entire time, uh, this entire portion of my life where I just didn't know what was wrong with me. I, I thought, you know, it's like everything's fine. I mean, I've had a pretty, I'm, I'm having a pretty good life. It's okay. Why am I having such a hard time? There was a sense of, yeah, what's wrong with me that I can't do what everyone seems to be doing, uh, that, that I'm so riddled and crippled by this anxiety and this depression and that everything feels so hard. I remember coming home from school and just just sleeping, sleeping as soon as I got home and just sleeping all the time where I could because I just didn't want to be alive. I just didn't want to live and experience life. It was intense and every so often I get a glimpse into how I felt back then and I don't even know how I made it through um and I mean I I I Mm. it's some ways I think it's a little bit of a miracle some ways I think it's a testament to like how um you know the human spirit will will want to stay alive even though nothing feels like there's a reason for it I was just going to say going back to that time when you were uh, a teenager where you'd had those suicidal thoughts, where obviously you felt something was fundamentally wrong. Did you have any idea what was driving that anxiety and that feeling? No, at that time I didn't. And it really only came to light later. The pieces fell in place later. Um, I felt like that entire time I was just missing something. And and I was also receiving that feedback from outside. Like people in my family were asking me, what's wrong with you? You have everything to be happy. And yet, it's, but and, and not, not in a, yeah, and not in a nice way. It wasn't being said in a nice way, but it, it was, yeah, it, it, it was, 
more of a pull yourself together uh, yes. what the hell you've got to complain yes. about. Yes, which is exactly <laughs> yeah. when you need to tell someone who's having suicidal thoughts. It's very efficient, you yeah. know, it's, it's the opposite. It's, I mean, yeah. obviously I'm being very sarcastic here. It's it's actually uh, awful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so to kind of maybe to share the piece that ended up... Um, putting everything in in the right light and 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 uh, there's a deep understanding that came later um was that that summer after we met so this was back in 2017 uh I attended with Alistair my first uh 10-day silent vipassana meditation retreat and for those who are not aware of what that is it's basically you sit for 10 days and you meditate 10 hours a day without without Exactly. And this was the first time in my entire life that I was not being talked to for 10 days. And let me tell you, this was amazing. (laughs) I did not expect to like it. I did not expect it would be so natural to me, but I realized how overloaded I was and how I needed the quiet. And so over those 10 days, progressively, the mind quiets down and, and you get into a place of stillness and... On the very, I think it was the second to last day of the retreat, I had a very strong rising up of that energy of what's wrong with me. The, the, the voices of what's wrong with me came very, very strong. And I got like really shook up. I started crying uh, very, very hard. We had a break in between two meditation sessions and I went outside and I just broke down. I was just crying and crying. And it was really like the, the, the self-hatred voice that I was hearing was so intense. It was just, you're, you can't do this. You're so lame. What's wrong with you? And just like attacking myself. And I was witnessing this self-hatred that had been taking place for my entire life. And I was just like, how is that possible? Why? That I realized and I remembered that I had been sexually abused when I was six. And mm-hmm. I, I think it, for someone who who has suffered her entire life not knowing what's wrong it's almost like you know someone who has chronic pain and is finally diagnosed with something it felt like such a relief during that first hour it just and then during that first hour of meditation it felt like everything was just looking at my life and at everything that I knew about myself through that lens and realizing, oh my God, of course, the self-harming, the eating disorders, the depression, the anxiety, the feeling I can't trust anyone, the, and everything was falling into place. And yeah, it, it felt like such a relief to just have, finally have the missing piece uh, on on why had I felt so bad my entire life. And, I mean, that must be a, in itself a very traumatic realisation. However, I sense that it also opened a door to, to freedom in a way by realising that. Yeah, and, I mean, it, it was there was a really strong sense of relief and peace for about a day and a half for the rest of the retreat, basically. And then... And then came the end of the retreat where I knew I was going to have to tell Alistair. Uh, I thought like, we might be breaking up or something. <laughs> yeah. Because there's no way to talk to, to the other anyone else. And I, I realized she's the one that like broke down. I was like, well, 
I don't, I don't know. You know, in yeah. meditation retreat, a lot of times you're like, what does this have to do with me? Yeah, you know, like you yeah. get stuck with your thoughts. Yes. And, yeah. And, uh, yes. <laughs> and so just, I think. Yeah, that must have been tough <laughs> to see that. It was disorienting. <laughs> yeah, because you're, you're segregated too. So men are on one side, women are on another side. So really? it's, it's uh, he, he had no way of knowing what had happened. And so you probably had to sit with some uncertainty for the next day and a half before we were able to reconnect yeah um that's probably an understatement (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah meditation retreats are great for dealing with your own internal traumas and fears they are at least it was like day eight we were already pretty far in and it was easier to handle at that point yeah yeah but yeah so just to to answer what you what you just um asked or said, Simon, yes, it w- there was a lot of relief and there was a lot of peace that came from it, but it also opened a massive, giant, big old wooden door that I, I had locked for 20 years and that I had made sure nothing would ever seep out of that door. So the the months and the years and still to this day to some extent i mean yes still to this day but not to the same extent as right as i like fresh out of the retreat it's it's uh, there's a lot that is being you know it's like a, a massive infection you know the, the the it's the pus needs to leave but it takes its time there's a lot there was a yeah. lot there yeah. and there still is a lot there um and so it's a it's a massive journey of not only reclaiming my my story and my life through that lens but also moving past the you know like embodying the victim positioning and then also realizing okay there might be something beyond that like I don't want to go through life as a victim at the end like at the same time but it's it's such a complex process but yes it's both relieving and also opening massive psychological doors that I, at the time, I think I was ready to face. I had a lot of tools, but it still was uh, really hard. I mean, the first month after I remembered, we were in Sri Lanka living in a little beach hut. And I remember I had an incredibly painful throat uh, infection that I, I couldn't drink or speak or swallow my saliva. And, and I would go through like really intense, like kind of rage episodes where I would cry on the bed and have need Alistair to like hold me because the rage was, uh, uncontrollable. So it, it's, um, yeah. It, from, it from the outside, there was almost a sense of like, and knowing your story and like kind of having a sense of where you were before that yeah. and watching the very challenging journey you continue you continue to be on to this day after that like you know that realization was huge mm. but it's been a really bumpy road since but like in a definitely in a positive direction mm-hmm. and where you are now from where you had that realization is like unbelievable the distance you've traveled and yes. You, I, I have to marvel at what seems like the intelligence of the body or your psyche or whatever, because it seems like it was kind of holding that to protect yourself until you were at a position, until it sensed you, you could start mm-hmm. to really open that door yeah. and, and work on it. Totally agree. It, it's interesting because obviously, uh, you know, on this podcast, I talk to a lot of people who've been through 
difficulties of many different many different shapes and sizes. But I think the one thing that I would observe is that actually once you've got the awareness of, of what's happened and it's come out in the open and you've started to deal with it, is generally speaking what people say is they look back on that as the moment then sort of new growth happened. Mm. Um, that, that that actually that was the beginning of a new beginning. Yeah, and I mean, it, it also, it, it, I, I think it, uh, the image that comes to mind is uh, that of a, a total unraveling. It's like I had built this entire sense of self and, and life and idea of who I was and, 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 you know, like these stories around who Julie Roxanne is and what she does and, and, and how she behaves. And, and all of a sudden, I, so I was like sitting in t- on top of this, this, I don't know, this shelf or this little building. And then all of a sudden the rug got pulled out from underneath that and then everything fell down. And it, it, there is something absolutely incredible in the ability to basically rebuild yourself from scratch. And it's also, uh, terribly daunting. And, and, uh, what does that even mean? Who am I? And there's, and there's also like, I mean, this gets, this gets to be maybe later in the process, but there comes this question of who am I if I'm not suffering? When that's all you've ever known for as long as you can remember, who am I if I'm not suffering and if I'm not in pain and if I'm not anxious and if I'm not depressed? And I would say it's been, it's been a very scary question to ask myself. And, um, but, but (laughs) it's led me to, this this place now where I can say that I feel the the best the happiest the calmest that I've ever felt in my entire life to a point that I I didn't even know it was possible to feel that way if you had told me this a few years ago I would have said I don't believe that people can feel that way I don't think that's you're you're being honest here um so yeah I mean that's that's obviously extremely good to hear and for you of course so to give give this the sort of real yin and yang we obviously need to understand Alistair's journey that that parallels that that ultimately brings you together yeah um I think in a lot of ways it was similar but definitely not the sexual abuse part but like I think the general narrative of the story was similar um I would say I was facing privileged problems um I, I had a pretty good upbringing in a lot of ways, which doesn't mean it was trauma-free. Um, but I think my the real story starts for me probably... Well, there was a sense my whole life that I was out, an outsider to some degree, and I never really understood that. Like, it wasn't something I... I didn't, I didn't get it. Um, and I didn't have a really clear understanding of that until later in my life. But there was a feeling that I didn't fit in. And I mean, there I had a fair amount of experiences like that. I was pretty intelligent. Um, but by eighth grade, I was starting to learn that that wasn't really a great thing, uh, at least if my goal was to fit in. And so that was really when I would say eighth grade is when I really made the deal um, that I was going to, you know, suppress or hide parts of myself or, or kind of give them up uh, for, for social acceptance. In part two, Alistair reveals how his early career in a successful startup made him question the direction of his life. 
the challenges that face the millennial generation, meaning that the traditional lifestyle goals are now unattainable for many. How a chronic illness became the spark that lit the fire to find the new life path for Alistair and brought the two of them together. How the far out life, adventures in unconventional living, has become the vehicle for their collective business lives and enables them to help others discover a more conscious life. See you for the second half. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning the Tables. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and be sure to listen out for the next episode, where I again will be exploring with my guests how they turned adversity into advantage. See you next time. Go safely.